Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 121. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on July 3rd, 2023, in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. This episode is a sidebar, which is our term for an episode that is off the timeline of the history of the Americans, our way of signaling that the episode need not be listened to in sequence. No prerequisites. Longstanding listeners know that we have a tradition of talking about great speeches in American history on Memorial Day and July 4th, when many such great speeches have been delivered. If you search in your engine of choice, you will find various listicles of great Independence Day speeches. They always include Ronald Reagan's in 1984, FDR's in 1942, which was the first 4th of July of our participation in World War II, and Frederick Douglass's famous speech in 1852. The pantheon of such speeches also includes the Independence Day speech of 29-year-old John F. Kennedy, in 1946, the first fourth after World War II. That speech, which was very much about one understanding of American history, the topic of this podcast, is the subject of this episode. The setting for the speech was Boston's Faneuil Hall. The occasion was Boston's Independence Day celebration. The context was Jack Kennedy's first campaign for public office, for the Democratic nomination for the Massachusetts 11th Congressional District. Now, from the vantage of 2023, when so many people with famous names, including the name Kennedy, run for public office merely on the strength of their celebrity, it's easy to wonder how it was that Jack Kennedy could give a speech that stood the test of time. I've not been able to figure out if it was written for him, but I do know that his great speechwriter Theodore Sorensen didn't go to work for JFK until he went into the Senate in 1953. There's every reason for me to believe that Jack Kennedy wrote the speech himself. It fits with his already well-established history as a writer. That said, the world is full of Kennedy scholars, so anybody who knows differently should correct me. I like these old speeches because they tell us so much about majoritarian thinking at the time they were delivered. Much about them is ahistorical. When a politician or a judge or anybody else gives a speech, the purpose is to evoke a feeling and to rally the audience to a point of view. Speeches by politicians, no matter how filled up with history, are not history. They are the raw material of history, and as such are interesting as much for what they get wrong as for the point they are making. Kennedy's speech on July 4th, 1946 is no different. So when I get to it in a few minutes, please don't take it as the truth. My suggestion is that you think of it as promoting a particular sense of what it means to be an American. This is not the time for a lengthy exegesis on Jack Kennedy's biography as a young man. If I live so long, I will do that. Pygrus promise, as that may be. Suffice it to say that he grew up in one of America's wealthiest families, and certainly its most prominent Catholic family. His father, Joe, was extraordinarily ambitious, first financially, then socially, then politically. 
Joe had made an astonishing fortune through a combination of sound judgment, an enormous capacity for risk, political connection, and good luck. His fortune was built first in banking, then by investing in real estate and Hollywood movies during their golden age. He was not, contrary to popular belief, a bootlegger. By the depths of the Depression, Joe Kennedy was worth perhaps $180 million. Adjusted for inflation from 1940, that would be around $4 billion today. It's a measure of our astonishing economic growth since that time that there are literally hundreds of Americans and thousands of people around the planet wealthier than that today. But in 1935, Joe Kennedy was one of the very richest people in the country. He'd been chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission and the American ambassador to the United Kingdom back when Great Britain was still, by some measures, the most powerful country. His children, to whom he was fiercely loyal and for whom he was immensely ambitious, lived a life of great opportunity. The Kennedy clan was extraordinarily committed to itself as a clan. The sons, in particular, were devoted to their father and knew that to earn his respect, they had to take advantage of the opportunities available to them. They were rich, they were entitled, but they were not spoiled, actually. His two oldest sons were fiercely competitive with each other. Joe Jr. was bigger, stronger, healthier, and more conventionally successful, at least in school, than Jack. They fought constantly, competed relentlessly. Jack constantly struggled to live up to his brother and at the same time go his own way. More than Joe, Jack took advantage of his father's wealth and position and traveled the world. With his father as America's ambassador in London, he traveled all over Europe as a young man and developed a keen interest in international affairs in the pre-war years. He turned his senior thesis at Harvard into a book, Why England Slept, a plan Winston Churchill's just published, While England Slept. The book sold more than 80,000 copies, a legit bestseller at the time. It got a lot of lift from the Kennedy name. Imagine if one of Elon Musk's many children wrote a book on international affairs in his 20s. And historians regard it as pedestrian in its geopolitical assessment. But it did demonstrate that the second Kennedy son was a serious young man. The 1930s saw a transformation of the federal government of the United States from an almost insignificant influence in the daily lives of its citizens to the behemoth that it has remained since. Joseph Kennedy understood that the great source of prestige in American life was shifting from business to government and, naturally for him, decided that he wanted his sons, and Joe Jr. in particular, to become important in that government. Both sons went to war in combat roles, even though both could have avoided it. Young Joe, who was healthy and strong, could only have avoided danger if his father had pulled the many strings available to him. Instead, he flew bombers out of Great Britain and died in the summer of 1944 in a virtual suicide mission against German rocket installations on the Atlantic coast. The story is complex, and we learned only in the 21st century that Joe probably died because of blown communications between the American and British militaries. Jack was not healthy and hadn't been since adolescence. 
he was plagued with gastrointestinal troubles, and then with the adverse consequences of early steroids administered to treat his colitis. The steroids damaged his spine with osteoporosis, and he was in almost constant pain. Jack spent an unbelievable amount of time in hospitals during his teenage years, weeks and sometimes months at a time. Neither the Army nor the Navy would take him, notwithstanding the looming war. Joe Sr. worked it out. Jack's medical history was lost. Some prevarications were advanced, and the Navy took him in. Eventually, he ended up in the South Pacific in command of a PT boat, number 109. PT stood for Patrol Torpedo. These were small, fast, barely armored boats with a crew of a dozen that could, in principle, jump into range and send a torpedo into a Japanese ship. They bounced over ocean waves at speeds up to 40 knots, the worst possible duty for a man with a bad back, which, of course, the Navy did not know about. The PT boats were, as new weapon systems almost always are, hyped beyond their capabilities by their advocates. There were wartime claims that PT boats had sunk a Japanese cruiser, six destroyers, and any number of other ships, but verified kills were only one destroyer and one submarine. Later, Jack wrote his sister Kathleen that, quote, the PT brass were the greatest con artists of all times. They got everything they wanted, the cream of everything, especially personnel. But the only thing PTs were really effective at was raising war bonds. That was after the events of August 1st, 1943, just a month shy of 80 years ago as I write this. Jack had deployed to the Solomon Islands, where a PT squadron had been ordered to take on the Tokyo Express, escorted convoys of reinforcements for New Georgia Island sailing through the slot, known on maps as the New Georgia Sound. Fifteen PT boats, including 109, attacked a Japanese convoy. The attack was ineffective. The 15 attacking boats only fired 32 of their 60 torpedoes and did no documented damage to the enemy. In what might have been a disaster for Jack's career, not to mention the end of his life, a Japanese destroyer rammed PT-109 broadside and broke it in half. Two of the men died in the collision, and the other 11, including Jack, went into the drink. There followed a remarkable story of survival, led by Jack. After the severed hull of the boat began to sink, Jack led his men on a five-hour swim to a tiny little island, less than 100 yards wide. Jack towed a wounded crewman the entire way. The rest of the story is equally grueling and miraculous, and since it is a staple of the Kennedy legend, many of you have heard it, even if a long time ago. Suffice it to say that by his heroism after the fact, Jack not only rescued himself and his crew, but his Navy career and his public image, from the ignominy of having commanded the only PT boat to be cut in half. The strain of the experience sent the now be-metaled Jack stateside. He had seen his last combat in the war, but the story of PT-109 would beat him home. Correspondents for the Associated Press and United Press International immediately realized the story of survival was clickbait, or at least would have been clickbait if people had clicked back then, for the audience at home. 
The Boston Globe splashed the headline, Kennedy's son saves 10 in the Pacific. And even the New York Times slyly wrote, Kennedy's son is hero in Pacific as destroyer splits his PT boat. Jack was 26 years old and already a successful author and celebrated war hero. When Joe Jr. died a year later, perhaps even taking on the very dangerous mission that killed him so he wouldn't be outmetaled by Jack, the second Kennedy son assumed the father's aspirations for political power. So it was that in 1946, he ran for the Democratic nomination for the Massachusetts 11th, in today's terms, a deep blue district, the first step in a career, to some degree already mapped out, that would take him to the Senate in the election of 1952 and the White House only eight years after that. When Jack Kennedy gave a speech, he ran with a carefully coached eye to his political future. That brings us to his speech on the 4th of July, 1946, which, as I said, is as worth reading as much for what it suggests about Jack's perception of his audience, both local and national, as for its substance. So here we go with a few fairly obvious interjections from me. Quote, Mr. Mayor, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, and let me just say right now that this would be much better with Jack Kennedy's Boston Harvard accent. We stand today in the shadow of history. We gather here in the very cradle of liberty. It is an honor and a pleasure to be the speaker of the day. An honor because of the long and distinguished list of noted orators who have preceded me on this platform. A pleasure because one of that honored list who stood here 50 years ago and who is with us here today is my grandfather. Interjection. This was his maternal grandfather, John F. Fitzgerald, a natural politician who had perfected the so-called Irish switch, chatting amiably with one person while pumping another's hand and gazing fondly at a third. In the words of Kennedy biographer Robert Dalek, Jack's grandfather had served three terms in Congress at the turn of the century and then resigned to run for the job he really wanted, mayor of Boston. Back to Jack. It has been the custom for the speaker of the day to link his thoughts across the years to certain classic ideals of the early American tradition. I shall do the same. I propose today to discuss certain elements of the American character which have made this nation great. It is well for us to recall them today, for this is a day of recollection and a day of hope. A nation's character, like that of an individual, is elusive. It is produced partly by things we have done and partly what has been done to us. It is the result of physical factors, intellectual factors, spiritual factors. It is well for us to consider our American character, for in peace as in war, we will survive or fail according to its measure. Our deep religious sense is the first element of the American character which I would discuss this morning. The informing spirit of the American character has always been a deep religious sense. Throughout the years, down to the present, a devotion to fundamental religious principles has characterized American thought and action. Our government was founded on the essential religious idea of integrity of the individual, 
It was this religious sense which inspired the authors of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Our earliest legislation was inspired by this deep religious sense. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Our first leader, Washington, was inspired by this deep religious sense. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Lincoln was inspired by this deep religious sense that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Our late lamented president, that would be FDR, was inspired by this deep religious sense. We shall win this war, and in victory we shall seek not vengeance, but the establishment of an international order in which the Spirit of Christ shall rule the hearts of men and nations. Thus we see that this nation has ever been inspired by essential religious ideas. The doctrine of slavery which challenged these ideas within our own country was destroyed. Recently, the philosophy of racism, which threatened to overwhelm them by attacks from abroad, was also met and destroyed. Today, these basic religious ideas are challenged by atheism and materialism. At home, in the cynical philosophy of many of our intellectuals, abroad, in the doctrine of collectivism, which sets up the twin pillars of atheism and materialism, as the official philosophical establishment of the state. That would be Soviet communism in a nutshell, for all of you following along at home. Back to Jack. Inspired by a deeply religious sense, this country which has ever been devoted to the dignity of man, which has ever fostered the growth of the human spirit, has always met and hurled back the challenge of those deathly philosophies of hate and despair. We have defeated them in the past, we will always defeat them. How well, then, has de Tocqueville said, you may talk of the people and their majesty, but where there is no respect for God, can there be much for man? You may talk of the supremacy of the ballot, respect for order, denounce riot, secession. Unless religion is the first link, all is vain. Another element in the American character that I would bring to your attention this morning is the idealism of our native people. This was not our modern use of native people. Stemming from the strong religious beliefs of the first colonists, developed as they worked the land. This idealism, this fixed regard for principle, has been an element of the American character from the birth of this nation to the present day. In recent years, the existence of this element in the American character has been challenged by those who seek to give an economic interpretation to American history. They seek to destroy our faith and our past so that they may guide our future. These cynics are wrong, for while there may be some truth in their interpretation, it does remain a fact, and a most important one, that the motivating force of the American people has been their belief that they've always stood at the barricades by the side of God. Interjection. Our politics today struggles with these very same arguments.
Back to Jack. In revolutionary times, the cry, no taxation without representation, was not an economic complaint. Rather, it was directly traceable to the eminently fair and just principle that no foreign power has the right to govern without the consent of the governed. Anything short of that was tyranny. It was against this tyranny that the colonists fired the shot heard round the world. This belief in principle was expressed most impressively by George Washington at the Constitutional Convention in 1783. It is probable that no plan we propose will be adopted. Perhaps another dreadful conflict is to be sustained. If, to please the people, we offer what we ourselves disapprove, how can we afterwards defend our work? Let us raise a standard to which the wise and honest can repair. The event is in the hands of God. This idealism, this conviction that our eyes had seen the glory of the Lord, that right was right and wrong was wrong, finally led to the ultimate clash at Bull Run in the long red years of the war between the states. Again, the cynics may apply the economic interpretation to this conflict, the industrial north against the agricultural south, the struggle of the two economies. Say what they will, it's an undeniable fact that the Northern Army of Virginia and the Army of the Potomac were inspired by devotion to principle. On the one hand, the right of succession. On the other, the belief that the Union must be preserved. Interjecting, most historians today would view Kennedy's sort of fairness doctrine approach as ahistorical. The reason Southerners cared about the right of secession was to avoid further legal constraints on slavery. But Kennedy's message comes less than a year after the end of World War II, a moment of great national unity. He certainly isn't going to begin his political career either by becoming an enemy of the still solidly democratic South or even by reminding Americans of any region of previous disunity. Back to Jack. In 1917, this element of the American character was stimulated by the slogans, War to End War and a War to Save Democracy. And again, the American people had as their leader a man, Woodrow Wilson, whose idealism was the traditional idealism of America. To such a degree was this true that he was able to say, some people call me an idealist. Well, that is the way I know I am an American. America is the only idealistic nation in the world. It is perhaps true that the American intervention in 1917 might have been more effective if the case for American intervention had been represented on less moralistic terms. As it was, the American people eventually came to look upon themselves as giving food and guns to a general cause, in which all other people had material ends, and in which they alone had moral ends. The idealism with which we had entered the battle made the subsequent disillusionment all the more bitter, and revealed a dangerous facet to this element of the American character. For this bitterness, a direct result of our inflated hopes, brought a radical change in our foreign policy and a resulting withdrawal from Europe. We failed to make the adjustment between what we had hoped to win and what we actually could win. Our idealism was too strong. We would not compromise. 
interjecting. You do not hear our politicians today say that idealism can be too strong or that compromise is a virtue. Kennedy, even at 29, had seen the compromises required of war up close, something few of our politicians today can say for themselves. Back to Jack. And thus we brought to our shoulders much of the burden of the responsibility for World War II, a burden which we would not then acknowledge, but for which we have paid full price in recent years on distant shores, on faraway fields and valleys and hills, on pieces of foreign soil which will be forever ours. It was perhaps because of this failure that the Second World War never did become a crusade, as did the first. Our idealism had become tarnished, but extraordinary efforts were made to evoke it. And it is indubitably true that the great majority of Americans had strong convictions as to which side spoke for the right before our entry into the war. It is now in the post-war world that this idealism, this devotion to principle, this belief in the natural law, this deep religious conviction that this is truly God's country and we are truly God's people, will meet its greatest trial. Our American idealism finds itself faced by the old world doctrine of power politics. It is meeting with successive rebuffs, and all this may result in a new and even more bitter disillusionment in another ignominious retreat from our world destiny. But if we remain faithful to the American tradition, our idealism will be a steadfast thing, a constant flame, a torch held aloft for the guidance of other nations. It will take great faith. Our idealism, the second element of the American character, is being severely tested. Now only time will tell whether this element of the American character will be true to its historic tradition. The third element of the American character that I would bring to your attention this morning is the great patriotic instinct of our people. From our pioneer days, perhaps because we were a people who developed from a beachhead on a tremendous continent, this American patriotism has always had as its core a strange and almost mystical love of the land. Early in our history, we acquired, as James Truslow Adams has pointed out, a sense of unlimited energy face-to-face -face with unlimited resources. Land, 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 stretching with incredible richness across half a world. Its sheer vastness has made it a challenge to the American spirit. The endless land stretching to the western sun caught the imagination of men who founded this nation and awakened the patriotic spirit that has become a characteristic of the American people. In the words of America's poet, Walt Whitman, we note this deep sense of the land. Land of the pastoral plains, the grass field of the world, land of those sweet-aired, interminable plateaus, land of the herd, the garden, the healthy house of adobe, land where the northwest Columbia winds, where the southwest Colorado winds, land of the eastern Chesapeake, land of the Delaware, land of Ontario, Erie, Huron, Michigan, land of the old 13, Massachusetts land, land of Vermont and Connecticut, land of the ocean shores, land of Sierras and peaks, land of boatmen and sailors, fishermen's land. 
Interjecting. Woody Guthrie had already written, This land is your land. So Kennedy was onto something, even if the son of a real estate tycoon wouldn't have agreed with Guthrie's politics. Back to Jack. The preoccupation with the land records itself in the catalog of the colonists' grievances against George III. It has always been reflected in the highest moments of our patriotism, for throughout the years, in the early days here at home and in recent years abroad, Americans have been ever ready to defend this native land. From the birth of the nation to the present day, from the heights of Dorchester to the broad meadows of Virginia, from Bunker Hill to the batteries of Saratoga, from Bergen's Neck, where Wayne and Malin's troops achieved such martial wonders, to Yorktown, where Britain's troops surrendered, Americans who heroically embraced the soldier's alternative of victory or the grave. American patriotism was shown at the halls of Montezuma. It was shown with Meade at Gettysburg, with Sheridan at Winchester, with Phil Kearney at Fair Oaks, with Longstreet in the wilderness, and it was shown by the flower of the Virginia Army when Pickett charged at Gettysburg. Pickett's charge was, it must be said, exactly 160 years ago today as I record this. It was shown by Captain Rowan, who plunged into the jungles of Cuba and delivered the famous message to Garcia, symbol now of tenacity and determination. It was shown by the 5th and 6th Marines at Belleau Wood, by the Yankee Division at Verdun, by Captain Leahy, whose last order as he lay dying was, the command is forward. And in recent years, it was shown by those who stood at Bataan with Wainwright, by those who fought at Wake Island with Devereux, who flew in the air with Don Gentile. It was shown by those who jumped with Gavin, by those who stormed the bloody beaches at Salerno with Commando Kelly. It was shown by the 1st Division at Omaha Beach, by the 2nd Ranger Battalion as it crossed the Purple Heart Valley, by the 101st as it stood at Bastogne. It was shown at the Bulge, at the Rhine, and at Victory. Wherever freedom has been in danger, Americans with a deep sense of patriotism have ever been willing to stand at Armageddon and strike a blow for liberty and the Lord. The American character has been not only religious, idealistic, and patriotic, but because of these, it has been essentially individual. The right of the individual against the state has ever been one of our most cherished political principles. The American Constitution has set down for all men to see the essentially Christian and American principle that there are certain rights held by every man which no government and no majority, however powerful, can deny. Conceived in Grecian thought, strengthened by Christian morality, and stamped indelibly into American political philosophy, the right of the individual against the state is the keystone of our Constitution. Each man is free. He is free in thought. He is free in expression. He is free in worship. To us, who have been reared in the American tradition, these rights have become part of our very being. They have become so much a part of our being that most of us are prone to feel that they are rights universally recognized and universally exercised. But the sad fact is that this is not true. They were 
dearly won for us only a few short centuries ago, and they were dearly preserved for us in the days just past. And there are large sections of the world today where these rights are denied as a matter of philosophy and as a matter of government. We cannot assume that the struggle is ended. It is never ending. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. It was the price yesterday. It is the price today, and it will ever be the price. The characteristics of the American people have ever been a deep sense of religion, a deep sense of idealism, a deep sense of patriotism, and a deep sense of individualism. Let us not blink the fact that the days which lie ahead of us are bitter ones. May God grant that at some distant date, on this day and on this platform, the order may be able to say that these are still the great qualities of the American character and that they have prevailed. Back to me. So there it is, a view of Americans and their history by an extremely talented and ambitious politician on July 4th, 1946. If someone gave this speech today, even with updating for our modern norms, mentioning women, for example, and acknowledging slavery as the cause of the Civil War and that we took a bunch of land from the Indians and treated them really badly, Twitter would explode with scorn. What about all those victims, foreign and domestic, of American hegemony? That day would come. Within 20 years of Kennedy's speech, those very questions would be debated openly on our campuses. And within 30 years, they would shape presidential politics, but not on July 4th, 1946. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website, and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date on podcast matters and sample my musings on mostly, but not only, history-related topics. Until next time.